Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Stephen Turner will join us to discuss the science of James Smithson. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, many people may know James Smithson as the founder of the Smithsonian Institution, but few may know his full and fascinating story. Well, joining us today to discuss the life of James Smithson is Stephen Turner. Mr. Turner is a historian of science and curator emeritus of physical sciences at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. He has written broadly about the history of American science and scientific instruments, has also developed a deep interest in the Smithsonian's founder, and has created most of his chemical experiments. He has penned the new book, the Science of James Smithson, Discoveries from the Smithsonian Founder. And Mr. Turner, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, good afternoon. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's certainly our pleasure. Certainly a fascinating book you've put together here, The Science of James Smithson. Sure, a tale that many people might not know about, but I'm curious why you decided to put this book together. Well, it all started almost 15 years ago. Back when I was a curator working at the Smithsonian, I had a meeting with a young scholar named Heather Ewing, and she was in the process of writing a new biography of James Smithson. She'd found a lot of new biographical material about him and information about his travels, and she was, she was putting together a, a new assessment of Smithson's life. But she came to me because she was having trouble understanding his scientific work. Smithson's writing style is famously difficult, and the terminology he, she used was just, just not accessible. So being a scientific instrument historian and someone with an interest in the 18th and early 19th centuries, I, I think she, she thought I might be the perfect person to help her understand Smithson's science. And I tried to do that as best I could, and, and she was very kind in acknowledging me when the book came out. The book turned out to be an important work. But once it was all done, I really had the feeling that, that there was still left to, things left to do, that, that there was information and understanding about Smithson that hadn't been appreciated yet. And so James Smithson became my new hobby. And for the next few years, I slowly recreated his experiments and went over his writings and tried to understand them. And about seven years ago, I realized that I had pretty much enough information for an entirely new book about Smithson, just one about his science. And, and so that's what I started to work on. And the result is the, the science of James Smithson, which just went on sale. So it's very exciting. Congratulations on the new release. I mean, it really is fascinating. One which I might not stop to think about so much. I mean, his name is born on the Smithsonian Institution, but his scientific work, not so much, maybe because it was a little bit eclectic in a way. He, he, he was definitely eclectic. And, and I mean, that was in the spirit of the time. People commonly studied multiple topics, you know, mineralogy and chemistry and botany or something. And Smithson was very much in that in that. Uh, tendency. He also wrote on things that were of interest at the time. So a lot of times, 20 or 30 years after his articles came out, those topics were no longer of interest. So they seemed even more eclectic than they were when he wrote them. But at the time, how was his work viewed? 
Um, he was actually quite well respected. He was, it seems sort of self-serving for a biographer to say this, but, but Smithson was brilliant. He was really inclined to think about things in terms of their deeper significance, and in terms of the philosophy of science, uh, of how the chemical bond worked and that sort of thing. And so he, he made a lot of contributions that as I got deeper and deeper into his science, I began to appreciate as a bit of a backdrop for people who aren't familiar with Smithson, where was he born? How did he grow up? How was he educated in terms of his science? Well, actually, Smithson was illegitimate. He was the son of Hugh Smithson, uh, probably the wealthiest man of England. And his mother was Mrs. Macy. She was a, a widow and independently wealthy, but still in a sort of the precarious social position of, of widows back in the 18th century. And the two Eventually, uh, she got pregnant, and Smithson was born in Paris. It was quite a bit of a scandal, and so uh, his Smithson's mother traveled to Paris for several months uh, where he was born, and he didn't return to England until he was a, a young child. He was raised probably in boarding homes. We don't know that much about his, his early life. He seems to have known his father, who was also interested in chemistry, and, and in one of his footnotes to one of Smithson's articles, he mentions that his father inspired his interest in chemistry. So there was some sort of relationship there. We don't know much more than that about it. Smithson, even though he was illegitimate, he was he was wealthy, and his family was well-connected. So he, he was able to attend Oxford, where he was generally considered to be the most promising of all the chemistry students. He started his, his scientific career at the early age of about 18 when he went on an expedition up into northern Scotland and, and had his first real experience of scientific work. Um, as soon as he graduated from Oxford, he moved to London, became a member of the Royal Society, and became an active, practicing 18th century scientist. His work in the area of chemistry, but it ranged across a number of different areas. Right, right. He, he published articles on making coffee and plant chemistry, which was a very exotic topic at that time. He had insights into the nature of soil, the nature of the chemical bond, deeply interested in crystals. It's all, all wonderful things, and, and as I've been re recreating his experiments, I've been able to collect a lot of these wonderful materials, which are all available on the Internet, of course. And so it, it's been, been doubly a treat, not only understanding Smithson and his experiments, but getting to a little chance to play around with some of these wonderful materials. Perhaps one of the more notable ones is calamine. Right. That's Smithson's most famous article. It was about the zinc or calamine. And he solved a historic problem, about a historic and, and practical problem, about how to make brass. Brass was the most useful metal in Smithson's time, I think it's safe to say. I mean, it was strong and, and weather-resistant and uh, fairly inexpensive, uh, durable. But the, the problem has been it, it, it's a combination of two metals, zinc and copper. And getting those metals in the right proportion and getting them to bond and stay stable had always been a problem, largely because the, the ores that these metals came from were impure and they couldn't control the manufacturing process. Smithson addressed that sort of incidentally as he was primarily interested in the, the philosophical aspects of the mineralogy of zinc and calamine. But, but he also basically described the, the three separate zinc ores and described methods of telling them apart, which is extremely useful to the miners, and resulted in zinc being produced in vast quantities by the end of Smithson's life. 
and brass going way down in price. So it, it's it's kind of a, a nice application of, of science, even from Smithson, who wasn't really that concerned with manufacturing per se. Eventually renamed Smithsonite. <laughs> I was just thinking I should mention that. Yes, yes, Smithson's most famous discovery is Smithsonite. And I'm sorry we can't go to the Smithsonian mineral collections because there are many wonderful, wonderful and beautiful samples of that material at the Smithsonian collections. He really did have a number of investigations, uh, minium, almond. I mean, you go into a, a number of these in, in the book. You went through the process of looking at all of his experiments. Were any of the ones particularly um, surprising to you as experiments that he might have conducted at the time or something where you, you wondered, wow, I wonder why he decided to, to go down this road? <laughs> many, many times, yes. Um, real discovery I think I made was, was Smithson's calamine article that we were just talking about. And in there he describes, at the beginning of the article, he describes an experiment where he says, um, he's talking about heating the sample, and he said, I, I, I subjected it to the blue flame, and it spread, spread flowers on the charcoal. And that's his experiment, that's his description of the experiment. And, and I remember thinking at the time I first read that, that this sounds like poetry. Is this, is this really science? But it was, and, and Smithson was, was describing effects that he saw with the tools that he used. So when he said he, he was heating the sample with the blue flame, that meant that he had a, um, what's called a blowpipe, a, a little curved metal tube that he could blow through a candle or a lamp flame with and make it much hotter and make it, and, and then direct it at what, whatever it was that he was trying to analyze. So that's, that's the blue flame. And then when he said the sample spread flowers on the charcoal, the flowers were the zinc being vaporized by the heat. Zinc has a very low melting point, or vaporization point. And zinc would go up in the air combined almost immediately with oxygen and then drop down onto the place where Smithson was working and, and deposit this, this white powder, which was at that time called the flowers. So we have the blue flame making flowers on the charcoal, and the charcoal was just a piece of coal that Smithson was used to hold his sample so that his fingers didn't get burned because the temperature is quite high. So I, 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 was, I was so impressed by that. It, it, even now it, it, it makes me smile because it, it was such a revelation that, that Smithson was actually describing real events, and all we had to do was just understand the experiments that he was doing, how, what he was using, and, and things would become begin to become clear. Did you recreate that experiment, and, and would you have described it the same way? I, I, I did, actually, and there's actually a video on the web on National Museum of Natural History website. So if you Google James Smithson blowpipe calamine, either on the Smithsonian site or on YouTube, a video will come up of that experiment again. Are many of these experiments complicated to do now? I mean, could people do them in, in their homes? Actually, I think they could. The problem is getting materials and the tools, most of which are not hard to put together, but they're not always easy to find uh, just, just with a simple web search. But yeah, really very little of it is dangerous. Not everything is safe, uh, but, but I, I avoided some of the more dangerous things, such as fluorine and that sort of thing. If I could talk to people, I would encourage them to try these things. They might try the, the Smithson's coffee, the first, and that's described in the book. But I, I, I think any of these, these experiments, or even just playing around with some of these tools, they're very engaging, and they, they certainly developed an interest in chemistry for me, and I, I, I think they would for other people as well. 
Well, since you mentioned it, and I'm sure a lot of people have an interest in it, what about Smithson's Coffee? Uh, <laughs> um, well, that was actually one of the most fun things I, I, I did in, in writing the book, was that Smithson had written this article about, about a method of, of making coffee. And I realized that it came about from his lifestyle, that he spent large amounts of his time traveling, usually on horseback with with one servant, sometimes in a carriage, but usually on horseback. So carrying things like a coffee pot was probably not the most practical thing for them to do. So Smithson developed a way of making coffee wherever he stopped, and all he needed was an, an empty bottle and a cork, and so a wine bottle would work perfectly. He'd just fill it almost three-quarters of the way with water, add maybe half a cup of coffee beans, ground coffee, lightly put the cork in the bottle, and put it in a pan of boiling water, basically a double boiler. You have to make sure that the cork is loosened from time to time as the as the coffee heats. But once it's done, it's very good. In Smithson's time, they thought that the powerful, desirable effects of coffee, basically caffeine, they thought that was in the vapors. And so this method of Smithson's of making coffee retains those vapors, and it, it does enhance the flavor. It's it's uh, As a lifelong coffee drinker, I was thrilled to find a new way of making coffee. It was amusing to me, too, that, that when I was working on this, I had a volunteer who was helping me do some of the research, and he was a retired nuclear engineer. And he he told me the story. He said that most of his life, he'd, he'd go to parties with his wife, and people would ask him what he did, and then he would watch them, them all lose interest and walk away. But now that he was working on Smithson and, and on this, this good topic of coffee, he was suddenly interesting for the first time in his life. And uh, I thought that was kind of a sweet story that Smithson might have, uh, might have enjoyed. Is this going to become your uh, go-to way of making coffee from now on then? It's, it's a little bit labor-intensive, but on special occasions, I definitely do it. All the sort of chemistry experiments that he did, were there any that had long-lasting changes in terms of advanced the science of chemistry? Actually, there, there, there were. What Smithson's colleagues thought his most important work had been was a simple remark that he made at, at the end of one of his articles. The article was about a mineral called zeolite, and, and, and at the end of that article, just sort of out of the blue, he mentions silica, the element silica, and how it seems to not follow the rules of chemistry as they understood it. At that time, in Smithson's lifetime, they thought that all chemical combination was between acids and alkalis, or what was called the acid-base theory. And this was the, the foundation of the chemical bond. That's what held everything together. But Smithson pointed out that the silica doesn't follow this rule, that sometimes it can bond with acids and form a stable compound. Sometimes it can bond with alkalis and form a stable compound. And so he, in a simple half paragraph of three sentences, he suggested this, and at the end of it, he concluded that, 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 that this was, this was a, a new understanding of the chemical bond that, that would lead to even further insights. And his colleagues, all but most of them, thought this was a, a brilliant observation and one that only someone with a good reputation could take since it was, you know, it was, it was overturning the, the conventional understanding of chemistry. And for probably two or three decades after Smithson's death, he was credited with this discovery. But then the French Academy of Science published an article, and they got Smithson's name confused with another English chemist, a cousin of Smithson's, called Smithson Tennant. And so credit for this discovery suddenly went to Smithson's cousin, and he was forgotten. 
as you go through the book, you'll find that there's several instances of this sort of thing where Smithson was really, I won't say cheated out, but in some way deprived of credit for his work. How do you think his scientific work then fell into the background and, and not as recognized as much for that work that he did? Well, that, 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 that's one of the, the things that, that has drawn me to this story is, is how that could have happened because Smithson was well-connected and he was a member of several important scientific societies and, and well-regarded by the, the people of his time. But he, I don't know how to characterize him, but, but he did some things that, that seemed to estrange him from the English scientific community, one of which was a bit of a long story, but he clandestinely published in the Royal Society's journal. This is the leading scientific publication of the day. He, he published an article that, that his colleagues d didn't, didn't approve of, they thought it was anti-religious. And that seemed to set uh, a certain decline in Smithson's fortunes after that. This was around 1809. He was criticized in, within English science and apparently ostracized to some extent. And he eventually ended up moving to Paris and spent the last 15 years of his life in Paris, um, never never lived in England again. And it, it it's it's bittersweet to to read some of the the eulogies of uh, about Smithson and and how how his English colleagues always wondered what happened to him and he was sort of lost to them. Smithson Smithson also had had a rich scientific and social life in Paris, so I shouldn't feel too sorry for him. How did he view his scientific career during that that period and towards the end of his life? How feel his contribution to science would be regarded? Yeah, this is an interesting question because there, there's some some famous statements have appeared in press, supposedly quoting Smithson as saying, "You know, I, I have the the blood of kings flowing through my veins," and and sounding like he was deeply concerned with with achieving lasting fame. My sense is that that's really not the case. That Smithson was really dedicated his life to, to acquiring understanding, understanding of materials, the natural materials, understanding of the laws of the natural world, a, a basic way, way of seeing the world as a whole, but as a, as a scientific product. The, the last 10 years of Smithson's life, uh, he was in increasing physical pain, and he, he tried to keep busy with his science, but he was, he was simply not able to do it after a while. And you can tell in his writings that he's, he's a little bit sad about certain questions that he was never able to resolve, and he tries to arrange his, his papers and these last few articles to encourage other people to pick up the mantle and, and study these questions that he, he will no longer pursue. But I, I think if he truly sat down and looked at, at his own work, I think Smithson would have been pretty satisfied with the way his life came out. And, and especially one of his last few gestures was, was to write a will in which the last clause is that if if all of his relatives are gone and no one else is around to take his money, that it will come to the United States to found the Smithsonian Institution. And I think, I think that that optimistic act says a lot about Smithson. And and it's nice that we're in a position now with this book and with this new understanding of Smithson to give him some credit for it. Final words regarding uh, your book, then the science of James Smithson. <laughs> well, I, I hope everyone enjoys it. Um, it's been a pleasure writing it, and, and I'm, we'll hope to do some programs with the Smithsonian at some point in the near future, actually demonstrating some of these things. So, so please, uh, please stay tuned for that as well.
Well, we were just talking with Stephen Turner. He is the author of the new book, The Science of James Smithson, Discoveries from the Smithsonian Founder. And Mr. Turner, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Well, thank you very much. It was my pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.